Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Welcome to the Carter Center and Conversations. This series gives an opportunity to discuss Carter Center peace and health efforts and current world issues with our neighbors in the Atlanta area. We encourage you to learn more about upcoming conversations and also watch past events at www.cartercenter.org conversations. You'll also be able to see uh, this event later in Spanish and English on the website. You may also subscribe to Carter Center podcasts on, of this entire series on iTunes. Tonight we're talking about the state of democracy in the Americas on the 10th anniversary of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. September 11th, 2001 was an historic day for two reasons. First, of course, is the tragedy of the attacks on the World Trade Towers. But second, perhaps less well known, is a very positive event. And that was the signing by 34 governments in this hemisphere of the most far-reaching commitment to date to protect and defend democracy as a human right of all citizens. This is the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Now, 10 years later, we're going to analyze how it's working. I'd like to introduce our guests, who are all members of the Friends of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which is an informal group that we formed here at the Carter Center seven years ago with eminent persons from the hemisphere who are all committed to strengthening democracy and encouraging the international community to use the Democratic Charter constructively and positively. Eduardo Stein was Vice President and Foreign Minister of Guatemala. He's now an independent consultant and most recently presided over the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Honduras. Mari Clara Costa founded the Mexican Commission of Human Rights in 1990 and served as Deputy Secretary for Human Rights in the Fox administration before moving to Washington to direct the Democratic Governance Office at the OAS. And we just learned that next week she'll be beginning a new position, helping to protect journalist uh, freedom and safety in Mexico. Joe Clark is the former Prime Minister of Canada. He's also served as Foreign Minister and Minister of Constitutional Affairs. He teaches uh, at McGill University and is Vice Chair of the Global Leadership Foundation. Well, let me start by giving you a little overview of the context. The current wave of democracy in uh, this hemisphere, in Latin America in particular, began 33 years ago in Ecuador, when all but three countries had authoritarian governments. Now, all but Cuba have competitive elections at least. The Caribbean countries, for the most part, uh, have been democracies since their independence in the early 1960s. Some are talking of this second decade in the 21st century as the Latin American century. Think about it. This region, Latin America, has had a faster recovery from the 2008 financial crisis than has North America. 
the region of Latin America had an average of 6% economic growth in 2010 and is projected to have 4.7% this year. There are young, dynamic populations, incredible richness of natural resources, dramatic improvements in poverty from nearly half of the populations living in poverty in 1990 to about 33% today. These are relatively stable democracies. Only Colombia has an ongoing armed conflict, and it is much more under control than a decade ago. The vibrant parliamentary democracies in the Caribbean continue. When we look at these aspects of democracy, we see some very exciting new developments where populations are using the ballot box to achieve what they could not through force of arms with new leaders and new ideas. Bolivia has the first indigenous leader ever. Three large countries have women presidents. Several countries have written new constitutions that expand human rights. But we also see frustrations. Frustrations with the pace of progress. Deep divisions in some societies over the very goals of change. And serious threats from criminal elements. Gangs, mafias, drug traffickers. In fact, while public opinion polls continue to show a majority preference for the system of democracy, they also show lower levels of satisfaction with democratic governments, that is, the performance of their democracies. If we analyze these frustrations, we see first and foremost a stubborn inequality that despite some modest improvement recently, remains the highest regional average in the world for an income gap. Now, I should add that the US has had some backsliding in this regard too and is not escaping from this problem. It's actually seen its income gap increase and it's now about the same as Venezuela's. In some countries, people who have felt excluded from societal benefits and political representation have demanded and achieved change in their governments through the ballot box. But in other cases, in some of those cases, those demands for change have produced backlashes and conflicts. And democratic institutions have not always been able to peacefully manage those conflicts. We've seen the conflicts boil over for example, the short-lived coup in Venezuela in 2002, another coup in Honduras just two years ago, massive social protests that have helped to force out a dozen presidents prematurely in the decade leading up to 2005. What I'd like to do now is look at some of these issues in more depth with our panelists. And I'll start with Eduardo Stein. You've been foreign minister and vice president of Guatemala, where a former general just won the first round of elections. And you traveled with the Friends of the Democratic Chartered Honduras after the coup in 2009, and later were tapped to head and lead the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which just issued its report in July. Could you tell us what lessons you've learned about the reasons for that coup and what we need to do to prevent political and social tensions from reaching that breaking point in the future in any democracy. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation. Thank you 
for being here for this conversation and those watching on the web. Uh, Honduras, in effect, is a key point in the understanding of what is going on in all of the Central American isthmus. And perhaps one of the most important lessons learned in the Honduras political crisis is that not having been a traditional coup where the military uh, ousted the president and took control of all of the uh, institutions of the state, here they were more like an instrument uh, in getting the president out of his house, his job, and his country, violating the Constitution. But the rest of the powers were intact, and the country split in half, uh, showing first a generalized frustration on the population at the incapacity of their political parties and their political leadership to find the negotiating way out of the crisis that was ensuing. Therefore, there was a weakness in their political institutions and in general in the institutions of the state, a lack of representation and also a very little leeway for citizens' participation in general. So what the Truth Commission is recommending is not only short-term uh, ad hoc uh, solutions to very specific problems, but a general tune-up of the scaffolding of the state. In, in fact, we are recommending that they make a profound revision of how the state in Honduras works. And several of these issues are as valid for Guatemala, for Salvador, for Nicaragua, and maybe for other countries in the hemisphere. Thank you. And let me point out that we will give all of you an opportunity to ask questions at the end of a, of a conversation that we'll have. So be thinking of your questions that you'd like to raise as we go along. Mariclare Costa, you've led a human rights commission in Mexico and you've witnessed the disruption to democratic governance that can come from criminal elements and the threats to citizen security uh, from both violent criminals in general and drug traffickers in particular. What reflections do you have on the capacity of democracies to address this kind of challenge and withstand it? Well, <clears throat> it's a very complex question that you've just asked me, Jennifer. So I want to start off by First, thanking you for this opportunity uh, to answer this type of questions uh, with you. And, um, and thank you, the audience, for being here tonight. Um, I think that this situation poses enormous challenges to democratic governance. Um, you mentioned earlier on that Latin America has one of the highest rates of inequality. Well, Latin America, the hemisphere in general has one of the highest rates of inequality in the world. Um, but it also has one of the highest rates of violence in the world, criminal violence. I once um, 
when I was working at the OAS, uh, I came across a statistic that really uh, blew my mind, and it was that more young people in, in Latin America die of violent crime than the, the, the whole population dies of, of degenerative diseases. I, I don't know if I'm saying this properly, mm -hmm. but I, I think you got the mm -hmm. gist of it. So it's, it's a very, very serious issue. And it goes hand in hand with the whole issue of inequality and lack of opportunities. Um, so, it, it, but it also, um, I think one of the, 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 the big threats to democratic governance uh, that this situation of violence and violent crime and drug trafficking and trafficking in, in people, because it's not only drug trafficking, there are other forms of organized crime that are also very present in many countries of the region. One of the problems that it poses is that it brings to light the enormous institutional weakness that we have in Latin America. And I'm going to speak about Mexico, my country, because that's the one I mo I'm most familiar with. Um, in Mexico, we have made enormous progress in terms of having democratic elections. I think we moved from being a state that had the longest living um, one-party rule and lasted for 71 years uh, to a, a competitive electoral system but we didn't touch the institutions of authoritarianism. So institutions are very weak, and especially those that deal with security and law enforcement and justice. And I'll just give you an example. Um, there's a, there's a, this current government in Mexico is waging um, a, a very, I would say, a, a forceful battle against organized crime and drug cartels particularly, which has spawned a, an epidemic of violence. It has spawned an epidemic of homicides, of kidnappings, of extortion. Um, and I, I, I can't go into that. It's very complex, but this is, these are the facts. But when you look at the criminal justice system in my country, and I just finished a research project on it, um, the criminal justice system has capacity to deal with 5,600 murders a year. We just had 20,000 homicides last year in Mexico. So what we're talking about is a system that has collapsed. And obviously, that's one terrible source of human rights violations because we're talking about impunity, and very serious impunity. But then you have corruption. And then you have, of course, the human rights abuses that go with trying to stem criminality. Because what, what governments use are, are military um, tactics, the use of force. So all of this begins to undermine democracy in many ways. It undermines the credibility of institutions. Obviously, it creates a, a mindset among people who want security at any cost even if that means renouncing to basic rights. It definitely takes uh, procedural rights off the table. I mean, due process is, forget due process. So it's, it's, it's that kind of very insidious undermining of democracy from within that this situation poses. And I would leave it at that. 
<clears throat> Thank you. And what you're posing dilemmas for many of the countries in the hemisphere, um, obviously. Particularly Honduras also has a very high rate of crime that they're suffering with. And uh, the next country that I'd like to, uh, to address faces some of the similar problems. Joe Clark, you've just come back from Haiti, the poorest country in the hemisphere, suffered a devastating earthquake last year, cholera epidemic, but also has recently had elections, a new president, some signs of hope. One of the problems uh, there is also dramatic inequality that Haiti's facing. How can a country um, face all of these types of challenges and maintain its hope? That's the startling question. And let me begin by thanking you very much for the opportunity to thanking you for being here. But that's the question that I think astonishes us all about Haiti. How can Haitians keep going against all of these terrible things that keep happening to you? And what is interesting is that there's generally a sense that uh, uh, a sense of pessimism, pessimism about Haiti, except perhaps in Haiti. And what struck me when I was there only for four days about a week ago was the I've been in countries that have suffered disasters, and I've seen a sense of hopelessness. I didn't see much sense of hopelessness. Now, I want to be clear. I was only in Port-au-Prince. I was being escorted around with, with police escorts, and I can't claim to have, have uh, had a bird's-eye view of everything that was going on. But we were in one of the larger camps of displaced people, uh, run by Haitians, interestingly. Uh, this country that seems to have so many problems in governance uh, has elected uh, its own uh, groups to govern the camps. They're doing it very effectively. People there uh, seem to be, um, I won't say optimistic, but they were not angry. They were not hopeless. And are there signs of hope? Uh, I want to be careful about this because you can, um, uh, what looks like a hope one day, turns uh, in Haiti and elsewhere. But we saw three or four quite interesting signs. One had to do with the lower house of parliament, which tends to attract the younger and the newer politicians, people who have not been part of an old system. Uh, I was there with um, uh, the former president of Mauritius, uh, who had himself been a um, uh, a city councillor and a mayor before he became uh, president of his country. We were speaking to parliamentarians on the topic they had chosen. And the topic they chose was the conflict between, the ma the, between mayors and members of parliament. And President uh, Kassam Yutim of uh, Mauritius said, why do you put it that way? Why do you assume a conflict? Why don't you assume that you can work together? And the answer to that was that Haitians have always assumed a conflict. There has always been a sense that uh, they had to fight with someone else. And when we began a discussion about things that they could do together, elected mayors, elected parliamentarians, we were dealing with 20, 25 parliamentarians around the room. Uh, they were very interested in this. They became quite engaged in that. Uh, I came away from that thinking that there is uh, a lot that can be done with that parliament if people sit down and talk constructively about uh, how things might be done. We then met some of the parties, and everybody has a party in, uh, in Haiti. There are all sorts of political parties. 
most of which are very personal, very transitory, uh, and seem to be at daggers drawn all the time. Again, we talk to them about what they might do together, what coalitions they might form. We had the impression that those questions had not been raised before with those uh, parties and that they could find a lot more to agree on than, um, than they had assumed. That's another, I think, point of hope. What is most interesting of all to me has to do with two personalities, but they're very key personalities. One is the president, President Martelli of Haiti, uh, an entertainer whom some have dismissed because he was an entertainer. He's a very good entertainer. Uh, he has a very strong connection with his populace. Uh, and he's also smart. And he's young. And he wants to change. And he hasn't uh, been dragged down because he doesn't come from traditional sources. He hasn't been dragged down by some of those traditions. Um, he cannot, by the, by, the, by the peculiar constitution of his country, name his prime minister. He has to have the parliament name the prime minister. The president uh, does not control the parliament. His party did very badly in the parliamentary elections. Uh, he nominated two people who were rejected by parliament as prime minister. And then he, he nominated a third who was finally accepted. The third is very interesting. Uh, he is a, um, a Haitian, obviously, 47 years old. Uh, he had been very active in international public service. Uh, including running UNDP operations. He understands governance. He has strengths that the president does not, as the president has strengths that he does not. They're both in their 40s, early 50s. Uh, neither is constrained by the past. Each knows that they have to act quickly and act together. I think that in this system that we have uh, defined in the past as being torn by factions, that there may well be a possibility in these two people who are more than just individuals, they symbolize forces in their country, uh, to, uh, with some help and encouragement from, from others, uh, to make some real differences there. Now, no one should have rose-colored glasses about, uh, about Haiti, uh, but when you can go into a place and see those kinds of positive possibilities uh, in, a, in a country that has suffered so many blows. Uh, we were having a conversation a moment ago. They don't feed us here at the, uh, at the Carter Center. They made <laughs> us wait all day, and then they, I think I got a piece of catfish. Was it catfish? It was I was catfish. Yeah. <laughs> but when I finished my catfish, uh, some of us were, were talking about one of the possible consequences of the earthquake. It's been a sad habit, my observation only, of um, Haiti, that every Haitian has blamed some other Haitian for all the bad things that happened to them. Mm. Nobody can blame another Haitian for the earthquake. There's nobody to blame for that. This was a tragedy that hit everyone. And it may be, this is wild speculation, I don't have a PhD, I don't have to define, cite footnotes for all of my conclusions. <laughs> Uh, the, it may well be that the recognition of this calamity that none of them caused, that struck all of them equally, has given some sense that there is a new obligation and opportunity uh, to work together without trying to, to lay blame in any way, in any event. Uh, whatever its sources, I thought I saw more hope 
than I had expected to see on that uh, visit, which I repeat was short. Thank you, and thank you for giving us some hope on that. Well, we've talked about some of the challenges ranging from natural disasters to organized crime to conflicts among the institutions of democracy themselves. So let me raise a slightly more philosophical question. We're talking about the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which basically provides for the collective uh, defense and protection of democracy. Yet, when we look at the hemisphere and when we ask people, do you support democracy? Are you satisfied with your democracy? I'm not sure that everyone means the same thing when they say democracy. And in fact, when you ask people, you can get different answers. Some people define it in traditional terms of competitive elections, freedom of expression, protection of individual rights. But others are defining it more in terms of the ability to participate in decision-making between elections, protection of cultural rights, and greater inclusion of more people in the society in the very benefits and riches of a country, social inclusion. And I would venture to say that these different perceptions of democracy actually underlie some of the conflicts that we see and misunderstandings that we see among the countries of this hemisphere, including between the United States and some of those countries that the United States considers to be the more radical democracies. And this may also contribute to some of the conflicts within countries. So I'd like to ask each of you to comment on this idea and your perceptions about this, the meaning of democracy, what people attribute to that concept, and what are the implications of that? Eduardo, would you like to start? Well, first of all, most people in Latin America elect public officials because there is a highly personalistic perception. We're still very prone to, to personalities, to individual leaders, and people feel and think that they might resolve uh, the ordinary day-to-day -day living conditions. So there are two potent motivators uh, in some countries even higher than others, security and jobs or income. Uh, but there is also a very subjective way of understanding their day-to-day -day life and their environment. And in this regard, I would say that there is one element that enrages most populations in Latin America, and that is corruption. Uh, just beside the recognition that we do not have very strong institutions, th there is a, a feeling that traditional politicians, traditional political parties, and the way of doing politics is directly linked to corruption. And that is why anybody who presents a platform for renewal uh, gets a chance at enlivening the imagination of citizens and voters. But also, there is another element, and it was mentioned here, inequality. Uh, a lot of people want an even chance at uh, opportunities 
to better their living conditions, to better what their families aspire to, not only in strict security uh, terms, but in general terms. However, in some societies, uh, the element of fear uh, on a day-to-day -day basis of not knowing when they leave for work, if they're going to be subject of an assault or, or a robbery or, or even worse uh, things, they're going to come back home uh, in one piece. In other countries where this is not as, as hard on a day-to-day -day basis, there is still a subjective element that politicians have failed uh, societies in delivering the goods. And that is why in Latino Barometro and in other polls at the regional level in 16, 20 Latin American countries, societies prefer in a philosophical way democracy but they don't like the way it works in, in their own turf. Societies in general, 60% of Latin Americans have answered that they would indeed prefer an authoritarian regime if that regime would solve their day-to-day -day, uh, needs and, and they would put some order in society and they will guarantee security to their society. One high-level State Department official, which I will not name, of course, uh, asked me a few months ago when we were at a turning point in the Honduran Truth Commission, why are you uh, Latin Americans, no, sorry, why are you in, in Central America so afraid of Chavez? Chavez is going down, there's, you know, uh, loosening the grip on, on, on the richness of, of oil, and uh, he's having so much trouble in, in Venezuela. And I said, how can I explain? It's a very subjective. Um, imagine President Obama invites President Chavez for an official visit. Uh, and they have a huge amount of people in the, what's the pool right in front of the monument, the, the, the reflecting pond over there with uh, signs and, and everything, and delegations from the leftist organizations of practically all the countries in Latin America come, and Madame Clinton, the Secretary of State, just like Patricia Rodas in, in Honduras did, it starts, you know, with a very inflammatory uh, speech uh, against capitalism and, uh, and taking into consideration the divisions that are here now in the United States where you no longer have a Republican Party and a Democratic parties, but several Democratic parties, several Republican parties fighting at each other from the extreme right and the extreme left. At the end of President Chavez's speech where he insults half of the population of the United States, the Deputy Secretary of State, Arturo Valenzuela at that time, takes his guitar and starts singing Comandante Che Guevara. <laughs> well, that's what happened in Tegucigalpa. 
the, uh, well, the, 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 the deputy secretary of state or, or the vice chancellor, she got the guitar and started singing Comandante Che Guevara. And it sent an electrical shock, not to high-ranking, very rich entrepreneurs in Central America, but to all of the middle class, people who are still paying on a monthly basis what they owe the banks for their homes or their cars or whatever, and they want to protect that patrimony. Because what we've seen in the media is a confiscatory agenda that is going on in Venezuela as well as in other countries. So those fears are also very, very present and are impinging upon the behavior of citizens throughout Latin America. Okay, so you're identifying some of the, the roots of the conflicts and tensions within countries that really come from fear. If you are really have identified fear here, and fear of being of losing and one's the own. need for politicians to deliver on the trust that voters give them a better way of handling things in their society that protect their security, protect their patrimony, and provide opportunities to better their standard of living. It's what just about everybody in the world aspires to. Mm -hmm. So expectations also of governments and demands of governments that aren't yeah. being met. Marie-Claire, what is your view of all of this? Well, I think that Dr. Stein has just presented a brilliant Thank analysis. You. So I want to take it from there because I think that, first I think that these two views of democracy don't have to be antagonistic, per se. I mean, um, in, in societies that are so unequal as Latin American societies, where large portions of the population are totally excluded, and for instance, indigenous population or Afro-descendants um, from public life and from, in general, from the formal economy and, and, and even from having a birth certificate. I mean, I worked on, on the right to identity and, and I can tell you 18% of the population in Latin America doesn't have a birth certificate, so they don't exist. They have no rights. They have no legal recognition of their rights. So, I mean, we are talking serious exclusion, serious inequality. So, yes, of course we want indigenous rights. Indigenous communities have all the right in the world to be asked if, if a Canadian mining company is to establish itself on their territory or not. Um, or, you know, or they have all the right in the world to rule them their own territories in, 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 according to their ancient customs, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are all of these issues out there of participatory democracy that I believe, I truly believe in. Now, at the same time, I believe in the rule of law, and I believe in human rights, and I believe in civil and political rights, and I believe, you know, that, that, that people also have a right to voice their expressions and and for the you know independence of powers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a lot of this, I think, has to do, I think, with two two things that that one of them, Dr. Stein, already put out there, and that is sort of this 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 
this use of caudillismo as a component of, of, of participatory democracy, uh, which, uh, you know, we have an example of that in Mexico too. Um, but then the other thing is I think that for many years, a lot of these problems of inequality and lack of opportunity and exclusion were left to the market to resolve. And I think that this, that, that we are, we, that part of this is, is a backlash of that. Because the market not only did not resolve them, it deepened these inequalities. And I think that what we really have to look at in, in Latin America is to redefine the role of the state and, and the role of the state in the economy. Doesn't mean going back to what we had before, but I do think, I mean, I just read an, a UNDP report uh, on my way over here where, you know, Rebecca Greenspoon says it very clearly. She says politicians have to think about the economy and, and the state has to be reconstructed to deal with some of these issues. So I would leave it at that. Thank you. And I do want to return to that issue because it's a very important issue. But first, Mr. Clark, you come from Canada. Canada, Canada the, com the, the company of these, the, the country that has these mines that exactly. keep going. Exactly. I, I noticed that. I noticed that. <laughs> I think, let me take this beyond Latin America because this is not a hemispheric problem. There is a problem with the legitimacy of governance everywhere. Uh, and in relatively stable developed countries, that's manifest in many ways, sometimes in the streets. Uh, there are actually people in the streets in Canada, believe it or not, uh, demonstrating, I mean, uh, but more often by people simply not voting. They do not uh, trust the, the system. And I think what's happened is that a combination of two factors has created a thirst on the part of people and a sense of capacity on, on a larger part than we're able to compete, to participate before, to become part of systems. And they become frustrated because the systems, we have been more successful in advocating and encouraging inclusion than we have been in reshaping our institutions to deal with inclusion. So we're dealing with a variety of, uh, of forces uh, that have overloaded systems. We all know about the decline of legitimacy in institutions, whether it's in churches or governments or wherever it is. But what we have to be doing, those of us who are interested in governance, who are interested in taking the principles of the charter and ensuring that they are a real part of real life, is, is determining how we can reshape those institutions before they either get overwhelmed, as happens in some cases, or simply die of disuse. Uh, and I was quite interested in uh, Dr. Stein's observation that there, in Honduras, there needed to be a reshaping of the society, in effect. There, in many of, our, of the countries of the world, there needs to be a, a reshaping of the institutions. And I don't think that these two views of democracy are irreconcilable, but I think we've been treating them as though they were somehow unconnected, and they're intimately connected. And we have to begin to look at... Um, uh, what we do to ensure that there is both some sense of inclusion and participation and some sense of order and predictability. And I will say precisely on the anniversary of the charter, the newly elected president of Peru, President Umala, made the point that the democratic charter needs a second generation now. 
and the second generation should focus on social inclusion, mm -hmm. not just the um, procedural aspects of democracy. But it still raises the point that uh, Marie Claire was, was raising that I want to ask you all, because all of our countries, particularly in the United States today, there's a strong debate about what should be the role of the state in the economy, and what is the obligation that the state, which represents all of us, have to all of its citizens to provide certain um, minimum levels of welfare, for example. But the to be able to do that, governments need strong institutions, and with that, they need resources. Yet we see a wide range of resources available. Mexico and Guatemala have two of the lowest tax revenues as a percentage of GDP in the hemisphere. And that means that governments are constrained in terms of providing uh, vests, you know, bulletproof vests for police to the capacity to provide health benefits and health insurance for all of their people. So until there's an agreement in a population about what should be the role of the state, what should it provide, um, and then how do we provide the resources on a fair basis, you know, the question is what, what can we expect from democracy. And one other point I want to make about that, it's not just collecting revenues and deciding what the state can do, it's how you spend those revenues. Latin America in particular has a very uh, regressive manner of spending the revenues, that is, that they benefit more middle and upper classes than the poor through free higher education, through the pension system, et cetera. So if you compare with Europe, there's a much more equalizing effect of tax expenditures in Europe than there is in Latin America, which may explain in part the high income gaps that we're seeing and level of inequality. So I'd like to ask for your reflections on whether or not this debate and these, this, these constraints of resources are a threat to democracy in the hemisphere. Perhaps. I want to be last this time. All right. <laughs> Mr. Clark, would you like to start? Well, I think obviously they're a constraint, but there are also, um, you know, the, the, uh, the European system is paying a price for the care it has extended to its, um, to its citizens. And uh, one has to ask how that happened and what the consequences were. I think there is no doubt that, that there are, are uh, there's a, there are a variety of causes, some of them historic for the uh, sharp gaps in, uh, in Latin America, uh, and those have to be addressed. Uh, but I think that, if I may, before we start to discuss what the state should do, we have to find a way to make the state legitimate. And what is increasingly occurring is that the state, as we would define it democratically, is not seen as legitimate. I'm not trying to, to avoid the question. The issue of, of uh, the role of the state in economic matters is, uh, is very clear, uh, very clearly important. Uh, my own view from a great distance is that part of what has happened in this region is that the enthusiastic embrace of privatization of former state entities uh, had all sorts of unforeseen consequences. People who did not understand the social functions those state entities performed got rid of it all. And that naturally is going to, to create uh, a, 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 a profound uh, 
uh, resentment against that kind of process. But I think that the real issue, with respect, is, is the question of the legitimacy of the state. And a legitimate state, I believe, uh, can be more successful in having more equitable tax regimes. It could be more successful in a variety of uh, difficult decisions, whether those are, uh, are doing new things or cutting services in some cases that should no longer be in place. An illegitimate state uh, cannot. Thanks. And that would probably also go back to the point that Dr. Stein made earlier about corruption as well. Yes. Right, the legitimacy being affected by the corruption levels. Uh, Ms. Acosta. Well, let me tell you, the hardest thing in Mexico is to pay taxes. To if, pay them? To pay them, if you're a member of the middle class. It is absolutely incredible, the amount of red tape and difficulties that you have to undergo to pay taxes. So, I mean, you do have a fiscal regime there that <laughs> is working uh, not very well. Um, so, I mean, having said that, and, and, and I don't want to be flippant about the question at all, I think that you do have to go back to the, the issue that Joe uh, raised, and it is about the legitimacy of the state. As long as you don't have transparency, um, and there is very little accountability of how the state uses the resources that it collects, um, it's very difficult to think that you're going to have a fiscal reform because then it, it, it ties in with all of these populist uh, slogans and things like that. I mean, in Mexico, we've had this, this argument for years, you know, and it comes up time and time again. We are using up the resources of, of oil, of the oil industry, to pay the bureaucracy and to pay the state. I mean, that's where the state obtains most of its revenues. So we are actually um, draining away the wealth of the country. But, you know, as long as the state continues to rely on monopolies of, you know, be them labor unions uh, or state monopolies, as long as there is opacity and lack of accountability, it's going to be very difficult to move forward on these issues. So I would say perhaps the answer would be more democracy. Do you have something to add now? Definitely. <laughs> we need an increase in the contribution of all of society, which is as equitable as the society we want to move forward to. In other words, those who are in the highest echelons of the national income brackets in such an unequitable set of, of countries should contribute more. And yet, the legislation is fashioned in a way that uh, they find all sorts of loopholes not to pay taxes or to avoid taxes. Uh, let me use a very personal example. When I became a foreign minister in my country, I paid more taxes than the third largest sugar cane processing plant in the country. 
It was like a charitable operation. They lost in all orders of their uh, <laughs> facets of, of, of sugarcane uh, milling and, and, and purifying process because the law allowed it to be so. So there is a need for accountability, for transparency, and for the supervision of the quality of, of public uh, investment. Secondly, there is such a huge distrust on Congress, Congresses in, in our countries because they see that in Congress is where la mera mata de la corrupción is, you know, where, where, where really the, the cradle of corruption rests. It's where most of the opacity in, in the public spending occurs. And thirdly, I personally think, and with all due respect to the different national situations in Latin America as well as in North America, the discussion is different when you have stronger institutions, but also when you have a different uh, demographic profile. Nicaragua, Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, we have a very similar demographic profile where 70%, 70 of the population is 30 years or younger. Uh, so we have about a half a million youngsters coming out into the job market every year, uh, 15, 16 years of age, and just 29% to 33% are absorbed. So where do the other two-thirds of the youngsters go? A few years back, they used to come to the United States, or they used to go to informal uh, economy. Now, where the restrictive laws are increasing in the U.S. for irregular migration or undocumented migration, and informal economy is shrinking as well, well, they go into illegality. And that's why we have this youth gang uh, phenomena, which is already uh, uh, an integral part of organized crime in our societies. We have to rethink our all, whole institutional scaffolding, not just from the point of view of collecting more taxes and how well do we spend the money we collect. We really need to readdress the way our societies work. Yeah. When you first started speaking, I thought you were um, echoing Warren Buffett speaking about the United States <laughs> the tax system here. <laughs> Many of the things you have said that you've all said also apply to the United States. I wouldn't say these are at all are problems limited to Latin America. Bueno, when you see Fox News or any other TV news, it's like two countries. They are really commenting things in a way like they were speaking about two different countries. I'd like to invite you all in the audience to participate now. There are two microphones at either side. If you would come up, if you'd like to address a question to the panelists. And we'll have some time until 8.30 to take questions and hear comments. 
And if you wouldn't mind uh, identifying yourself before you ask your question, and if it's directed to a particular person, identify that as well. We'll start over here. Good evening. My name is Chesley Talley from St. Paul's College in Lawrenceville, Virginia. The 1973 coup d'etat in Chile was a watershed event. The overthrow was said to be organized by the military and unofficially endorsed by the Nixon administration and the CIA. Pinochet eventually took control of the government and established a military dictatorship that was marked by severe human rights violations. <coughs> My question is, do these past events still affect relations between the United States and Chile? Uh, before we address that, let me say, I should have said that September 11th was also the anniversary yeah. of a third event, not 2001, but 1973, which was the overthrow and the coup in Chile against uh, the government of Allende. Um, would anyone here like to address the question? Yes, you would. <laughs> I don't know if they affect the relationship between the United States and Chile. I, 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 I don't live in Chile. It's, it's very far away. But what I can tell you is that it does affect the perception of the relationship between the United States and Latin America or at least it did during my generation, very, very, very powerfully. And if you add to that other, you know, like the wars in Central America, et cetera, well, it, 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 it does. And I think a lot of these regimes, populist regimes in Latin America, play on that a lot. Um, yeah, definitely. May I say something about that? Because I've been very interested in the insistence on sovereignty in the Americas. Uh, I do a lot of, I've done a lot of work with the Commonwealth, of the British Commonwealth, it used to be called. I suppose in Canada it's being called the British Commonwealth again now. Uh, but uh, it used to be the Commonwealth. And you could get agreement among governments to take actions that impinged to some degree on the sovereignty of a member government. Uh, the classic case was the Commonwealth campaign against apartheid but it happened on other issues too. And these were sovereign nations, but they weren't sovereign like the sense of sovereignty in the Americas. And I think that some of the sense of sovereignty in the Americas, some of it, has to do with a sense of their treatment by the United States. And whether that has changed or not, uh, that impression, as you were saying, is quite deep. And it has all sorts of implications. We, We've been, I had the privilege of being with President Carter a week ago in Brussels to talk about means by which election observation could be made more effective. And it was striking to me that one of the groups that was most resistant to international organizations having a capacity to intrude on electoral procedures was the Organization of American States. Uh, and they were not being perverse about this. They were being reflective of an attitude that is curiously stronger here than it is in Africa, stronger here than it is, I think, in, in parts of Europe. Uh, I wouldn't comment, I can't comment on Asia, but I think that has to do with that historic uh, relationship. Exactly, and just to answer, obviously the relationship today between the United States and Chile is quite strong and quite positive, but it's, these, these longer term implications are, have been quite uh, widespread, as, as they have noticed. 
Did you want to answer? Could it be going? Uh, Bob Pastor? Yes, uh, Bob Pastor from American University, formerly of uh, Emory and the Carter Center. It's great to be here. Uh, I want to follow Joe's last comment and ask all of you to reflect on this question of sovereignty versus collective responsibility. Um, you know, Jennifer was quite right in pointing out that all of the ills that had been discussed about Latin American democracy actually apply right now to the United States. Um, but there is one moment of political genius in the United States at our birth in which the founding fathers realized uh, that it was far better to have a dysfunctional government um, with different branches fighting each other than to have an authoritarian government. And indeed, they've therefore built checks and balances in the system. And in large countries, in large and complex societies, you have those checks and balances. But in the smaller Central American countries, we're seeing once again a slow resurgence of the manipulative powers of individual leaders to concentrate power. And the question is whether the inter-American community in some form could return to what it did in Esquipulas in the late 1980s and said, yes, democracy is so important for us that we need to have a responsibility in other countries where, that it's threatened. That, of course, is the basis of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. But this is a moment right now where it seems to be endangered. And the question for the three of you is, is there a role? And how, how can we go about ways to ensure that the ch if the checks and balances within a particular country break down, that other neighboring democracies will come to the aid to assure and to reinforce democracy? I'm really glad you asked that, Bob, because that was my final question that we didn't have time for. So, and he was not a plant either. <laughs> Who would like to start? I am a plant. <laughs> a potted plant. <laughs> when we were wrestling with internal armed conflicts in three countries in Central America, Bob Pastor came up with a book whose title was Whirlwind. Uh, and if I recall, one of the main arguments was that at some point, political trends and complications acquire a force of their own and become, in effect, a whirlwind that tend to draw into this whole, uh, everything that gets near trying to solve the situation. And maybe, the delicate balance between this collective responsibility that is uh, written into the uh, democratic charter and the constant claims for the individual state's uh, responsibility to their own sovereign uh, turf, so to speak, uh, is re-edited today. I don't have an answer, although I do have a PhD. I've never tried. Uh, I'm sorry about that. The, I'm sorry but, about um, that. <laughs> when I was vice president in my country, 
we asked the Supreme Court to revise one of the very basic laws in the Guatemalan legal scaffolding, which is the uh, law, the amparo. Uh, I don't know how to translate that in English. Habeas corpus. Uh, judiciary review. Because written in the early 80s, when we were about to, to strike a deal with the guerrillas and we made the first uh, real drafting of a new constitution which was filled with guarantees for human rights, this Ley de Amparo tended to protect the rights of individuals against the authoritarian onslaught of the military rule which had been in effect in Guatemala for 50 years. But today, or when, you know, five, seven years ago, it was used by mainly corrupt lawyers to protect criminals. And they could elongate a trial for seven, eight, nine years without ever resolving uh, with a verdict using the ley de amparo, just stalling all procedures. So we asked the Supreme Court, since you have uh, the initiative to present a proposal of law to Congress or, or legal initiative, why don't you draft the corrections or the revisions or a new ley de amparo? They took a year, all of a year, to do that. And what they came with was something to cry for, really. It, it was such a, a bland revision of the Lady Amparo that it was useless. And that's when some of us took the decision to go to the UN and request the aid of the UN in the form of an international commission against impunity. This, of course, had a formidable political cost for yours truly, but since I was not aspiring for any electoral post afterwards, I couldn't care less. And so we finally managed to sign an agreement with the UN in a totally new type of cooperation, international cooperation, because it was one of the member states of the UN requesting this type of aid in order to strengthen our legal scaffolding, mainly our court system, but specifically to strengthen the Ministerio Publico, the, the public minister, the yeah. prosecutor's office. Uh, we might have found on the way that it has some flaws, some revisions are needed, what have you. But the fact is that we managed to get international cooperation through this type of mechanism in order to strengthen our own capacity to prosecute criminals. Because out of 100% of all the homicides in a year, just 2% went to trial. So that, that, that was the efficacy or the effectiveness of our, of our legal system pertaining to homicides. I don't know if this is just a very small, tiny 
particular example in a small, tiny country. But this is the type of international cooperation that in a very concrete and effective way can help us. Other reflections? Well, very briefly, I would just add to that the whole success of the inter-American system for the protection of human rights um, and the mobilization of civil society. I, I, I think I would go more for the mobilization of civil society. I mean, I happen to be a member of a network, of a Latin American network for democracy. And I mean, the mobilization that goes around, you know, the issues of of democracy in Central American countries is unbelievable. So that's where I would put my money for the moment. I don't know about the collective defense of democracy at the OAS. That's something we're going to discuss tomorrow. There was one other example um, in Ecuador in about 2005, I believe, and Carlos Ayala participated when they had a crisis and had lost their Supreme Court, basically had been removed by the president, and there, the international community came in, the OAS, the UN, the Andean community, to help to supervise the selection of a new Supreme Court and to give it more legitimacy. But again, and I think going to the root of Bob's question and that we're wrestling with is, you may have been unusual, Eduardo, in that you didn't have political aspirations, and so you were willing to pay that political cost. It works if there's an invitation from the sitting government, but not if the sitting government is part of the cause of the problem and is resisting yeah. assistance. Yeah, Let me go on. We have a long line of questionnaires. We'll go over here. My name is Elroy Johnson, president of the St. Paul's College SIFE team. I have enjoyed myself thus far, and I have a question that I would like to ask. Uh, thank to, thanks to my wonderful advisor, he actually had me to research this event before I came. And my interest was in the civil society organization, so my question states, what are some actions that civil society organizations may take to increase the standard of living of Andean countries? And some, for example, are countries like Venezuela, um, Peru, in which our team is personally working with a project in Lima, Peru. And so countries such as these and Guatemala. I know of several examples of very uh, fruitful and uh, full of, of very concrete results of not only local NGOs or civil society organizations, but also at a regional level. Matter of fact, when I headed the electoral observation mission to Peru in 2000 when Mr. Fujimori wanted to elect himself for a third term. Uh, there was a network of Peruvian human rights organizations, more than 80 organizations that were in effect the main advisory body to the electoral observation mission. So there is indeed uh, an accumulated experience in the region in terms of civil society organizations, which thanks to internet and digital media are exchanging intensively their experiences throughout the hemisphere. Yeah. 
very clear. You put your money on civil society. Do you want to give any other specific examples? Well, there are lots. Um, a lot of, 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 of and, and, and civil society is, is very well organized in, in, in the Americas, and especially in Latin America. And there are a lot of platforms, that they're called platforms, to deal with specific issues. And they meet regularly, and they exchange um, information and, and, and a wealth of experience. And, and um, I mean, I think a lot of them are available on websites and things like that, and, and you can contact them. I think it would be very important uh, to begin to build you know, stronger links between US-based organizations and Latin American-based on organizations on common issues and common problems. I think that would really be a way to go. And then there are a lot of very important international NGOs. One of them that comes to my mind is Plan International. That do, they do extraordinary work all over the, the Latin American countries with you know, dealing with issues like the standard of living. Let's go over here. Hi, my name is Stephen Miniger. I'm a uh, PhD student here at Emory uh, in political science. I, I have my master's in Latin American studies from the University of Florida, and I study uh, judicial independence uh, and accountability in Brazil and Latin America. Uh, in particular, a number of you spoke about weak institutions. What do you see as, as an effective blueprint to increase institutional accountability in order to strengthen institutions in Latin America? And my second question is what can we as, as political scientists, I'm not a political scientist yet, I'm a future political scientist, but what can, can we as political scientists do to increase knowledge about issues of democracy and institution building in Latin America? I was never a political scientist. <laughs> I was a political scientist, I was never a PhD. <laughs> And just for the record, I profoundly regret not having earned a, a PhD. I'm going to deal with the second of those questions. I think that there is too much of a tendency for people with the kind of knowledge you were acquiring to retreat into some, I don't want to say ivory tower, uh, but there is, there is a real thirst among people uh, for, inf for informed, for information. Uh, and you have to be careful how you present it. Uh, but uh, I think that there is, I think in fact one of the things the United States does better than my country does is uh, have connections between the academic world and the public world. But I think that that needs very much to be built on, built on in, uh, in all our countries because, and it, one of the great advantages of it is it is mutual. There is mutual learning here. Uh, you learn the real context of uh, the things that you've uh, studied intellectually. Okay, we're going to move right. over here. Um, hello, I'm Nicholas Nasser, I'm a freshman representing North Cobb High School, and I have a question for you in particular because of your experience in the, and my, the details of my question. So you were explaining originally that in 2009, you became an indispensable member of the Truth and, Commi the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Honduras to, prov to promote the democracy satisfaction rate in Honduras. 
because of the originating coups, like, and with your with your problems or like with the problems you had regarding that topic, what were the what were the preliminary goals that you had to set in order to improve the satisfaction rate, and would you use these would you use these preliminary set boundaries almost as a t basis for improving other countries in Latin America? Would you use that basis to improve their democracy satisfaction rate as well? I think we have a lot of potential dissertations in these questions. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Dr. Stein. We were tasked with basically finding out, if possible, which were the elements that led to such a complicated crisis, not only to the ousting of the president, but the whole of the crisis, uh, possible causes of it. And then the second main thrust was to put in the hands of the Honduran population, not the authorities only, but the Honduran populations, elements to prevent it from happening again. So first we had, to dig, we had to dig deeply into what happened and try to account for the possible causes and interrelationships of why this could not be averted through negotiations and political uh, means. Why did it go as far as it went? And secondly, when we tried to draft the recommendations, what we did mostly was not to rely in our past experiences. There were five international, well, sorry, five commissioners, three international, two Hondurans. But to get from the Honduran people uh, the elements or, or the suggestions for the betterment of their own society. We had the chance to go to the 16 uh, land departments uh, throughout the territory and ask directly to the leadership of different communities what they thought uh, needed their own country to be a better country, what their society needed to be a better society. You don't need a PhD to do this. Uh, really, uh, what you need is common sense. And uh, we found extremely uh, fruitful uh, suggestions coming from the people, from the communities themselves, and they addressed constantly at the same type of very basic issues, how to combat uh, corruption and impunity, they wanted justice to be made. They wanted the people who did wrong uh, to be put to, to trial. They wanted the traditional political parties in Honduras is almost a bipartisan system uh, to open up the possibilities of participation. And they wanted uh, politicians themselves to be more transparent and to be honest to, to the people, not to promise what they couldn't deliver, but to, to be very, very 
frank about what they could and could not do. And there is another element that was very striking. Uh, the engagement of the youth in all of the meetings that we had uh, throughout the territory of the country, of Honduran uh, country, it, it was like two different planets. Tegucigalpa is intoxicated with politics. That's all they uh, talk about for the entire day, uh, whereas the rest of the country uh, thinks differently. So that's how we were able to enrich the breadth and scope and the depth of the propositions, gaining insight from asking uh, the Hondurans themselves. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Sun. Uh, my name is Sergio Roldan. I am from Guatemala. I'm majoring in political science at Georgia State University. And if I may, I have two questions, one for Ms. Marie Claire Acosta and one for Dr. Stein. And I would like to start with uh, Marie Claire Acosta. It seems to me that Mexico was never a militarized country in like other places, with the exception of Tlatelolco. What has been the reaction of the Mexican people to see the army in the streets? Have there been any human rights abuses? And go ahead with your second question. Oh, my question for Dr. Stein, and I'm glad he gave a lot of background information about the CICIG in Guatemala. <laughs> And uh, also you were very critical of it about two weeks ago in an interview given to Prensa Libre. You said that although it was necessary, it could be supervised, it could be mass fiscalized. And what would be one of uh, some of the supervisions that, that it can have? And I'm going to um, ask for the answers to be relatively brief so we can get a few more. We've got about five minutes left. Um, the Mexican army is, has a very high degree of, of, of acceptance and prestige in Mexico. And even now, when it's playing this role in, I mean, public security is militarized, um, the, 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 every opinion poll still rates the army very high, much higher than the police. I mean, people don't trust the police in Mexico they trust the army. Now, there are there have a lot of very serious human rights abuses have been committed by the army. Um, and so, and in, in, well, for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and there's the whole very serious issue right now, and it's a very heated debate in Mexico around the issue of of the uh, fuero militar, of the military jurisdiction over certain crimes, um, and and this was sparked by by the by a ruling of the Inter-American Court. Um, so you've got that going on, and the Supreme Court in Mexico has just ruled that the, about this in in very progressive terms, and has actually you know mandated that. The, the military code be revised. Um, and, on, and on the other hand, um, appreciation of the army's role has decreased, although it's still, because the, the amount of complaints of human rights abuses are very high now. So people continue to, to trust the army, continue to appreciate the army, but 
I saw a poll the other day, uh, and it's lost about 10 points, the mm -hmm. Army. So it's, it's a very complex situation. Thank you. Four questions. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to ask there four after. Why don't you answer that one quickly, and then we'll ask, ask uh, all the questions. Because that, that question leads me to another that I would like to ask. Former Prime Minister, <laughs> Sir Clark. But I don't want to dodge the answer. Right. I just, okay. for, for the use of time. Yes. Maybe we could. Uh, let's go ahead and, and if you could give your questions very quickly, and then we'll, they can have a, a minute each to respond to what they can. All right. Thank you. Um, my name is Megan Sonner. I also represent the North Cobb High School and its magnet program for international studies. Um, Ms. Acosta and Mr. St I mean, Dr. Stein um, <laughs> argued that states must shift their relationships with economies. And you mentioned that this is especially relevant because of youth unemployment, gangs, and um, illegal drug trafficking. How can you address income inequality while also promoting economic growth? What protections and uh, restrictions must be implemented? Okay, and okay. go ahead and hear all the questions and we'll see what we can learn. We're going to have to end with these four, I'm afraid. Um, I too want to address the Honduran situation, Dr. Stein, since you're the chairman of the commission. Uh, having struggled through the 50 plus page summary, executive summary, with the help of my poor Spanish and a Spanish English dictionary, it appears that. Uh, Regarding the outcome, uh, although uh, this was uh, labeled a coup against the executive, not a coup d'etat, it appears that most of the uh, fault has been laid at the feet of uh, Zelaya, who was attempting to uh, uh, extend his term and uh, perhaps uh, uh, take over a, a la Hugo Chavez of the polity of, uh, of a country. Uh, the uh, the Congressional Research Service issued a, an opinion that uh, said that what was done by the, uh, the unanimous vote of the Honduran Congress, uh, the unanimous order of the Supreme Court, half of whose, more than half of whose members had been appointed by Zelaya, all was legal and the Constitution authorized the arrest of uh, Zelaya uh, in two articles that are, are spe very specific in that regard. The only thing that really seemed to be amiss was the taking him out of the country instead of depositing him in a jail in the middle of, uh, uh, of Tegucigalpa. It, question? The question is, why is it, uh, two questions, one for Dr. Stein and one for you, Ms. McCoy. Uh, one is, why has the, uh, the community of the Americas not given more support to a country that was clearly fighting to avoid a, a uh, Chavista-type Chavista uh, dictatorship in their country and, and following what they thought was the only means that they had necessary under their law. And the second is, why is the administration of this country really in violation of the spirit of the Truth and, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, refused to more emphatically recognize the legitimacy of the Lobo government and why have they refused to return the visas of uh, the people that were the uh, members of the interim government? We are not going to have time to answer all of these questions, and so we may have to address them um, afterwards privately. Uh, very quickly. Very quickly. I've had the privilege of visiting Peru 22 times in the past six years on a humanitarian faith-based project. 
I've watched with interest the election of President Umala and all of the ramifications of that. My question is this. In Peru, and I have my interpreter here, happened to be here from Peru this week, they have mandatory voting. They have to vote or they are fined. Do you feel that that promotes democracy and inclusion? And if so, would you recommend that to our current Republican Party? My name is uh, James Moore, and I'm retired, but I have over 25 years service uh, working at the federal penitentiary here in Atlanta, and also 36 uh, years of commission service in the U.S. Army. And the question I have for Ms. Acosta is, uh, one of the presidential candidates has espoused uh, that the U.S. invade Mexico in order to rid it of the drug cartels. And kind of a second portion of that question, we have an Iranian citizen, American citizen, that was trying to employ uh, some of the drug cartel to murder the Saudi ambassador and also attack the Israeli embassy and wanted to get your feelings about that. You each have one minute to choose a question to answer. <laughs> Let's start with Marie Claire. Oh, um, well, I'll answer the last question. Um, I believe that the, um, the, the person who was approached to commit these assassinations was an undercover DEA agent. So that's really all I have to say. Uh, regarding CICIG supervision, I think, I, I strongly believe that we, both the UN and the Guatemalan government, signed the agreement in good faith. It was a totally new experiment and perhaps we lacked the foresight to include elements of better supervision in the hiring of the personnel of CICIG and exposed evaluation of the cases that CICIG had investigated and constructed to the judiciary. For the uh, Truth Commission in Honduras uh, and the results, well, the text the narrative of the, of the report is 580 pages. That 50-page or 56-page summary is of the main findings and the, main, and, and the recommendations in which, from my recollection, we indicate that, as grandmas used to say, de lado y lado se repartió vocal. Both <laughs> sides violated the law. Uh, Congress, in expelling the president after the fact uh, from the post when he was already in Costa Rica, they overextended their mandate. We investigated with outside international legal uh, help, and they overstepped. Uh, the, the, the law that mandates the functioning of Honduran Congress does not allow them to do what they did. So on both sides, they violated the law. That's why we concluded that all the scaffolding of the Honduran state needs to be revised, beginning by the Constitution. And uh, regarding how to strike a good coexistence between economic growth and what was the other element? Uh, inequality. Addressing inequality. Well, we have found in several countries in Latin America that it can be done. Uh, indeed, 
There are ways in, in which we can foster economic growth at reasonable levels without uh, firing up more inequality and at the same time uh, do away with the way in which uh, the new type of international trade deregulation has spiraled no concentration of wealth throughout the world, not only Latin America. Mr. Clark, you have the last word. I, was, I thought I was spared. No one asked me a question. I didn't have to. Um, I want to pick up on one thing that, uh, in answer to, to question Bob Pastor put. Uh, I believe in discussion. I think that public discussion and discussion among decision makers, real discussion, not sitting down and reading notes that somebody has prepared for you, uh, can lead to, um, uh, to considerable new thinking. I think that if we're going to uh, amend institutions, modify institutions to accommodate new realities, that it is very worthwhile to sit down and talk to people about uh, those matters. I think that also has to do with, with publics. Uh, I don't want to tell you the result of my consultations, but I led a long constitutional discussion in Canada uh, for uh, 18 months of my life. Uh, I will tell you the result. We got unanimous agreement among governments and the people voted against us uh, in a referendum. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, the, the process itself was extremely valuable. And, and we all learned a lot. People did, uh, citizens did, governments did. And I think that one of the things that happens now in this age that we claim is characterized by an increasing ability to communicate is that in fact we're communicating less. Uh, we live in our silo silos. Uh, we don't move beyond our silos. Uh, when heads of government come together, uh, they read notes that somebody prepared for them and uh, uh, there is not much of the real kind of engagement uh, that, uh, that is required. And I think among the things that we should be looking at as we're trying to find uh, uh, ways to revive and make effective a sense of democracy in the Americas is the role that conversation and discussion uh, can play in uh, that process. Thank you very much for your attention tonight, and thank you, Jennifer, for arranging all this. Let me say, let me say at 10 o'clock on CNN in Espanol, you may see again Dr. Stein and Ms. Acosta speaking. And we want to thank all of our esteemed panelists and all of you for contributing and for being here tonight. This will be, as I, as I said earlier, uh, archived uh, at cartercenter.org, the webcast. And the next program in the conversations at the Carter Center is called Human Rights in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which will be on Tuesday, January 10th. And you can read about that on the cartercenter.org website as well. Thank you again for joining us tonight. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.